Reverend Adam Caldwell is back in the pulpit this morning, and I know you're going to enjoy that. The scripture verse he has chosen for this morning is from the first letter of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to hear these words. We announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen and our hands have handled about the word of life. The life was revealed and we have seen, and we testify and announce to you that eternal life was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also announce it to you so that you can have our fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So it's the second time you've said, I know you're really going to enjoy this, and Sheila knocked it out of the park. I don't know if I'm going to hit it straight down the middle or shank it left, or I don't know where I'm going with this thing, Deb. I know. Good morning. Don't you love side conversation in, in front of everybody? It is such a pleasure to be here with you. My name is Adam Caldwell. Um, I, at one time, was the associate pastor here at Salem, um, now working for a company called Thriving Financial as a financial advisor and a recruiting uh, professional for them. Um, a while back when I was in Kentucky, our whole family was in Kentucky, we used to visit our in-laws in North Carolina. They lived in Asheville. Have you ever been to Asheville? It is beautiful, isn't it? And I remember there, being there, and I said to my brother-in-law, John, I was like, John, do you see, do you, like, do you see these, these mountains anymore? Because sometimes when you live somewhere, they, they just kind of fade in. And I say that because now that I haven't been full-time in the pastorate for a few years, I'm kind of a free agent, right? And I get to kind of go to different churches. And I wonder if you all actually realize the power of the music that happens here at Salem. Like, do you hear it? Oh, it is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing this morning. And thank you to the String Quartet. It's been fantastic the past two weeks. And for Sheila being here, I'm just so grateful. You don't even realize what you have. You're so spoiled, you people. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, it has been a, an absolute pleasure and an honor to be uh, with you these past few weeks. I just want to do a quick recap because when I write sermon series, I like for them to, to build on top of one another and, and for us to kind of put a full picture around it. And Marvin always tells me not to do that um, because you all don't show up every week. So nothing against you, of course. Um, but I, I can't get out of my own way in terms of that. So these past few weeks, we've been talking about the Trinity. Our sermon series has been bad math equals good theology. And if you'll remember from our very first Sunday, we dealt with the equation 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Right, very good. Now that doesn't make a lick of sense for those of you who know anything about math. But guess what? Sometimes God doesn't make sense. And so we've been wrestling with this idea of the Trinity being Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The first week we talked about this, this tension within the Trinity itself, that the Trinity is for lack of a better term, altogether separate. Did anybody's head just explode? Uh, that we see the distinctness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet, looking at them individually, they all are a picture of who God is. 
Now, we can get ourselves in trouble if we try to view the Trinity from a formulaic standpoint. And I made the argument that if we can somehow view the Trinity as the most beautiful art we've ever seen or heard, then maybe we've got a shot for God to begin to sink deep inside of us and begin to transform us and change us from the inside out. So that's how I want you to think about the Trinity. You are gazing at the Trinity from all perspectives, and simply by doing so, it will begin to change you. Now, I can't just talk theologically. It's not how I'm wired. I talk theologically a lot, but I also have to pull in sociocultural things into the mix because here's my position. If we as Christians aren't actively trying to make a better world, why are we Christians? Okay? So we've talked about the the differences and how in society we are as separated as we've ever been in our history since the Civil War. You can document this. We are as far apart on the left as we are on the right as we have ever been. And so for the past few weeks, we've been trying to figure out how we as Christians in this world and God is calling us to be menders, how can we live in this tension and pull each other back together? Keeping in mind that There may be some separations generationally with individualism and collectivism. There may be some separations ideologically, but what is that thing that binds us all together? So the second week, we dug specifically into the Holy Spirit. It was Pentecost, and I really, my approach to this sermon series has been, if there's a way that you can allow God to change you, then and only then, Will you have an impact on the outside world? Because the reality is, I can't force you to do something. You can't force me to do something. But what we can do collectively is we can all look inside of ourselves and begin to wrestle with who we are and who God is calling us to be so that we can then go out and make an impact in the world. So, the, the, the second week was the Holy Spirit, and we really dug into confirmation bias. We all have confirmation bias. We are all biased to the positions that we hold. In fact, we all seek out information to back up our confirmation or to confirm what our biases are. And I made the argument that unless you wrestle with that on what your confirmation bias is, specifically what you're biased to, when you enter into dialogue and conversation with other people, and I'm not just talking about shooting the breeze here, talking about the Cardinals or the Blues winning the the, the Stanley Cup. I'm talking about actual life-changing dialogue, cultural-changing dialogue. If you aren't able to recognize your own confirmation bias, you probably won't have a shot of moving the ball forward. And so our takeaway there was, listen more than you speak. Listen more than you speak. The third week, we talked about his Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, belated Father's Day to all of you out there. Psychiatrists say that at the root of who we are as individuals and collectively, we have this deep-rooted sense of belongingness or this need to belong. And really, when we see this picture of the Trinity, we see a Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit, it gives us this idea of family, and that we are all a part of God's family, and that God is constantly wooing us and drawing us to be a part of the family. 
not in separate bedrooms, but bunked up together all nice and cozy and bumping elbows with one another. And so there we took away this idea of Christian hospitality. Now, greeters are important and uh, contact from the church is important. That's not really what I'm talking about when I say Christian hospitality. Historically speaking, Christian hospitality is a deep-rooted sense of caring for each other's burdens. Being able to care and to, to hold each other in terms of burdens. And I think it's something that we need to, to get back to. This week, as we round out Father, Son, Holy Spirit, except we went Holy Spirit, Father, and now we're doing Son. All right, are you with me? Um, we're really going to dive into something that is emotional. Yeah, maybe. Good, good word for it. Okay, thanks for the confirmation there. That's my bias coming through. I ended last week with a, a quote from Brene Brown, and I actually wanted to start this week with it because it, to me it dovetails perfectly with what I feel God is calling us to do. She says this, those who have a strong sense of love and belonging have the courage to be imperfect. I'll read that again. Those who have a strong sense of love and belonging have the courage to be imperfect. So it's been five years now since I was a full-time uh, pastor and many of you know our story. Some of you know our story much more intimately, and so you know the, the more vivid details of our story. Some of you know our story a little bit more ancillarily from the, from the outside. Um, I want to share with you what happened five years ago. Can I do that with you this morning? So uh, we were called to a couple of churches in the Kansas City area. If you're not familiar with United Methodism and the way it works, Pastors, um, we like to say we're called to be sent, meaning that call, God calls us into ministry, and in the United Methodist Church specifically, we are sent to our appointment of where we serve. And so I got a call from the bishop and said, congratulations, you have been appointed to two churches in the Kansas City area, well, you'll be the senior pastor. And we said, yay, sort of. put our house on the market here, uh, bought a house over there, actually held two notes for, for over a month. Anybody ever held two notes for over a month? That's really fun, let me tell you. Moved, picked up, moved across the state, and the churches that I was called to serve, they had had, I was the fourth pastor in a year and a half. catch those collective groans Ooh. fourth pastor in a year and a half now I knew this because I'd had dialogue with other previous pastors I actually had a dialogue close dialogue with the the pastor who started one of the churches a decade ago now it would be 15 years ago and I knew that I was walking into quite a bit of hurt because any church who goes through leadership that quickly in that short amount of time it's inevitable there's going to be pain there's going to be hurt so I stood up there on the very first Sunday and did my best to cast vision. And I said, I know that you've been through a lot. 
I know that I am the fourth pastor in a year and a half for you. And I'm here to tell you that I'm not going anywhere. Now, 830 laughed, which made me feel better about myself. That you're not laughing makes me feel a little vulnerable. (laughs) I stood up there and said, I'm not going anywhere. And they (laughs) preached four times. Whoop, deuces, see y'all. That means goodbye um, for some of you. So here's what happened. Whenever you're appointed to a new church situation, as a pastor, you want to get embedded into the community as quick as possible. And here's what that means. Embedded in the community means that you get into relationship and learn as many stories as quickly as you can. So when you're a new pastor, the first 90 days are very, very critical to the success and the leadership of the church. So we moved, and I was working probably 60, 65 hours a week, having coffee. Now, it wasn't backbreaking, laborious work, but, you know, you hear a lot of stories and build a lot of relationships, and I was working. We had moved our two kids, two oldest at the time, who have, some of you may know, have fragile X. Fragile X is a genetic disorder that causes mental and physical deficiencies. 25% of folks with Fragile X are also autistic. Both of our boys fit into that category. So they have a, a dual diagnosis of Fragile X and autism. They also have a third diagnosis that many people aren't aware of called apraxia. Apraxia is the inability to imitate. From a developmental standpoint, think about how important it is to imitate. Speaking, language, You learn by imitating. Physical attributes, uh, gross motor, fine motor skills, you learn by imitating. Think of the number of steps sequencing is really hard for them. Think of the number of steps it takes for you to get into your car, turn the key on, and drive away. Like, break that down into the number of steps. So for our boys, from a learning perspective, what might take you and I two or three times takes them a hundred plus times. Not only that, but with Fragile X comes this idea of the threshold. In our world, we talk about the threshold all the time. You know what a threshold is. When you first get married, uh, guys, what are you supposed to do with your bride? Carry over the threshold, right? It's this idea that you're transitioning into something new. And it's not that our, our kids with Fragile X don't want to transition into that something new. Sometimes it's something that they enjoy, they love. It's just the getting across that threshold is very difficult. So when we moved, um, at one point here in St. Louis, we had 40 hours of in-home therapy between the two kids. 40 hours. That was between about seven different therapists that would come into our house I, I, my, I always make the joke that my wife, as soon as our kids are grown and, and life is different, she's going to join a, one of the major Fortune 500 companies and be their chief operating officer because she could do it. No doubt in my mind she could do it. And so this is what we moved. When we got there, because of that threshold factor, every other night our kids were on a sequence where one of them wasn't sleeping. So one night Israel would be up all the night. The next night, Ezekiel would be up all the night. The fourth Sunday, I got into the pulpit. Well, I stood in front of people because I don't get into pulpits. 
And I gave a sermon that I typically give to illustrate our family and our struggle. And the sermon revolves around Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with the angel. It's actually where Israel gets his, his name from. And um, this is one of those like hard on the altar sermons that a pastor gives, you know, like you're just putting everything you have out there. And afterward, I had a young woman come up to me and say, hey, um, can I get coffee? I want to talk to you about something. And whenever a pastor gives a sermon, I'm get, like, we're going behind the curtain here, right? Whenever a pastor gives a sermon and somebody comes up afterwards and says, hey, can we go get coffee? Um, I want to talk to you about something. Not usually are they going to run through a list of all the good things they heard out of your sermon. It's typically not, not what happens. Now, I am wired as such that I want to be in environments and work environments where I am pushed to my limits to do my best. Anybody else relate to that? Um, so I like to open myself up for feedback. <laughs> so I went and had coffee because the, the other goal in this first 90 days is to what? Get embedded in the community as quick as possible to get to know people, to know their stories. So I went and had coffee. Had coffee with this young woman. She's perfectly delightful. She actually had some really, really good points in retrospect that if I were to do that sermon again, I probably would change some things about it, believe it or not. But what I realized was is that in the course of that conversation, the points that she was bringing up were deeply rooted in her own pain. And at that time, it had been a month, and I had about this much left in the tank for spiritual care and for care for anybody else. And what broke me, there's no other way to put it, what broke me was not her feedback. It was that I knew I couldn't care for her in that moment. And so I went home, actually took the rest of the day off, um, and I had two days of panic attacks. Anybody ever have a panic attack? We had some brave people raise their hands in the early service. All right, okay. If you've never had a panic attack, let me, uh, let me paint the picture for you here. <laughs> a panic attack is like perpetually being underwater and while you're trying to get to the surface as quick as you can, but you can never break through. You just feel like you're drowning. Now, when I was in Kansas City, I had long hair. Anybody remember that? Yay! So, <laughs> I can laugh about it now, so it's fine. So you can laugh with me if you want, but when I was having a panic attack, inevitably I'd be down like this, and my hair was not tied up, so it was hanging in my face, and every time I would <clears throat> breathe in, the hair would suck up into my mouth. This is what happened. And here we are in St. Louis. My dream of being a senior pastor since I was 16 years old happened for a month. Now I tell you this story not to, honestly, honestly, not to elicit sympathy from you so that I can get something out of you. I tell you this story 
Because I believe weaved into the very existence of our world is this idea of vulnerability. Weaved into the existence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, in their essence, is vulnerability. And my argument, as we move forward with this series of how can we put together some tools in our lives and in conversations with one another is that if we as Christians don't begin to tap into our stories of vulnerability, we're not going to be able to mend. So there's a few things about vulnerability that I want to lift up this morning. We're going we're gonna to go to scripture, we're going to look at Jesus, we're going to see how Jesus kind of is the embodiment of vulnerability. But first, I want to talk about what vulnerability isn't, okay? Because I think we can get confused here a little bit. First thing is this. Vulnerability is not exposing somebody else or holding someone else accountable. Now, those of you who've been in church all your life, I'm sure you've been in a prayer meeting where, where little Miss Gladys stands up and begins to pray for Miss Jean who just is not living on the right path, and she's living with a boy, but she's not married to that boy. That's not vulnerability. That's gossip wrapped in holiness. There's a, there's a culture going on right now, and it's called the call-out culture. Anybody familiar with this? Call-out culture? For those of us who are in circles specifically of justice and um, those types of things where we want to see equity in, in, our, in our social sphere, we want to see justice being done, um, unfortunately, I believe we've slipped into some negative things in terms of a call-out culture. And so it's not uncommon for somebody to go to an event or something that's pushing equality and then all of a sudden you have 15 people posting on Facebook about how they missed the boat here, posting on Twitter about how they messed up there, how they messed up here. That's not vulnerability. That is actually shaming. And it's the opposite of what we're trying to affect in this world. That's not vulnerability. Secondly, vulnerability is not simply disclosure. You're not being vulnerable if you're live-tweeting your divorce. You're not being vulnerable if you're Facebooking on how your kids are affected by what your spouse has done that you're going through that divorce. That's not vulnerability. Vulnerability is defined this way. It is uncertainty of not knowing how others will respond and taking the risk of emotional exposure anyway. It is not telling a story to elicit sympathy to get somebody to do something for you. That is not vulnerability. That's what we call manipulation. Vulnerability is always couched in the idea that you are building a bridge of relationship with the person across from you or the group across from you to go somewhere, not to get them to do something for you. So how does Jesus embody this? 
There's two things about vulnerability that I want us to pick up on. First one is this. Vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity. It's also the birthplace of innovation and the birthplace of change. Now stick with me here. This is John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus. The Word was with God in the beginning. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, John wanted to to drive it home there. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What is John telling us here? In a poetic fashion, John is trying to get this idea across to you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Eternal community. I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't need you. (laughs) God is in communion with God for all existence of all time and all places. And it was only through the power of vulnerability and the fact that love does, that God said, hey, let's create something. And we get this story in Scripture that God creates the world and He creates you and He creates me and He creates us with something called free will. And what happens? It goes haywire. And as the the nursery rhyme says, we all fall. Vulnerability is weaved into the fabric of creation. If God had not made God's self vulnerable, we wouldn't be here. Not only that, God goes one step further. The word, everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. Now, Brene Brown, has anybody seen her TED Talk on vulnerability? Okay, great. If you have not seen her TED Talk, I I highly encourage you to go look it up, watch it. I believe right now it's the third most viewed TED Talk of all time. And that puts it somewhere around 36 million views, like on YouTube. I'm hoping she's at least getting some cut of that. (laughs) She talks about after that TED Talk came out in 2011, she was contacted by a bunch of Fortune 500 companies for her to go speak at their companies to inspire their companies. And she thought, this was fantastic. I'm going to get to speak to some of the most influential leaders in our country. Here's the caveat. They also said, by the way, we love you. We love your style. You're really funny. We love the way that you communicate in this easy fashion. We can understand you. But we don't really do that whole vulnerability thing. And she's like, what what do you want me to talk about? What, your fourth quarter earnings? I can't even balance my checkbook. They said, well, no, what we're really struggling with is creativity and innovation and change that's what we're really struggling with and on the other side of the phone she said no what you're struggling with is vulnerability imagine 
being at one of these companies and your job, your sole existence for working there is to come up with a new idea, a new way of approaching things, a new widget that's going to change the world, and your job after six months, 12 months, 18 months is to stand up in front of people and present what you've thought up. And half the people in the room are going to think it's the most stupid idea they've ever heard. If that's not vulnerability, I don't know what is. The only way that we are going to be able to pull this thing back together is if we get vulnerable with one another so that we can create new, healthy pathways of conversation with one another. Vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity. Not only that, the second thing. Vulnerability draws us closer together and breeds empathy. Hear these words. This is from John 1, 9 through 14. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children. Now, before we keep going and we race past this, I want, I want us to really, 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 really wrap our heads around this, okay? So what we're talking about here, and this is sometimes where our Christianese can get in our way because we, we use this language all the time. We come to church every single Sunday and we kind of gloss over it. But what we're talking about here is the transcendent God the God who exists outside of time and space, this massive, massive God who created everything became man. That's not something to be glossed over. That is the embodiment the very essence, the very being of vulnerability. Not only did this God create in a vulnerable manner where he created us with free will that we could run away from him, but he also became vulnerable by taking on flesh, by looking like you and me and running after us. That is the embodiment of being vulnerable. Born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but from God, us. The Word became flesh and made His home among us. We have seen His glory, glory like that of the Father's own Son, full of grace and truth. Now, some of you are sitting there and saying, this is all well and good, Adam. You know, I mean, and you're, you're accentuating your voice nicely, and you're, you know, you're holding our attention to a certain degree. But really... I don't do vulnerability. I know some of you are thinking it. That's just not me, nor is it for me. Brene Brown tells us you have one of two options. Either you willingly participate in vulnerability, or vulnerability 
does you. Here's what I mean by that. I'm married. I have a wife. Just celebrated our 15-year anniversary on June 19th. Thank you very much. Um, my wife uh, gets to stay home with our kids every single day. And trust me, she works far harder than I do. Amen? Well, you didn't have to, like, just agree <laughs> right away. Goodness. Now, I've already mentioned that I enjoy working environments where I'm pushed to my limit, where I'm called to be a better version of myself. And sometimes when you work in those environments, it's an absolute necessity that there are times when you get feedback. And I don't care how much you want to push yourself to be the best. Anytime you get feedback, it hurts. And so just picture this, I'm at this moment where I get feedback, and I come home, and it's 5.10, and the two boys are still swinging and playing outside. Emma, who's two and a half, who knows where she is at this point, and I walk into the living room, and Drew is just sitting on the couch. Now I have two options. I could, A, walk in and say, I work my tail off to provide for this family. It is 5.10. The boys are outside. We don't even know where our two-and-a-half-year-old is. And you are sitting on the couch. Or... I could simply walk in and say, hey, babe, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, today was a really tough day. Uh, we had some performance reviews, and apparently I have some things to work on. Um, and I just, I just want to let you know that I might be a little bit grumpy. And I might say some things and I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not really looking for you to fix this for me. I'm not, I'm not really looking for you to, to have the answers. I just, I just want you to listen. And if I am grumpy, it's not you. It's not the kids. It's me. Now, what does that do? That immediately breaks down walls. That immediately brings us closer together and compatibility and relationship. Now, if I had gone in with version A, we all know how that would have ended. She would have responded, as she should have, who do you think you are? (laughs) And we would have ended up in the bed sleeping with our backs to one another on the very edges of the bed that night, right? You've all been there. Either you do vulnerability consciously and willingly, or vulnerability does you. This is what we're called to. I like to wrap it up in a pretty little boat. Um, and so what I call this is empathetic, creative discourse. It's leading 
with your own vulnerability to create a new pathway of conversation that actually gets us somewhere. Empathetic, creative discourse. So remember, vulnerability is the uncertainty of not knowing how others will respond and taking the risk of emotional exposure anyway. So I got a couple questions for you. Because I want to make you think. And I want to make you wrestle. And I want Jesus to change us. So when was the last time you were truly vulnerable with somebody? No, like, like, like date, time, maybe a name in there. Like when was the last time that you were truly vulnerable? And not in that I'm going to try to gain sympathy from this person so they'll do something for me way. Truly vulnerable. So that you could deepen the relationship to move the ball forward. When was the last time? And the second question is this. I don't know about you, but if I'm not intentional about putting things into practice, they don't just happen. If, if I don't have a game plan for practicing vulnerability in my life, it's not just going to happen. So maybe you're in a leadership position. Maybe you lead a team of people. And maybe you, things just aren't clicking and you're not firing on all cylinders. Maybe there's an opportune time for you to walk into the next meeting and, and just be vulnerable about what's happening. It's scary. And it feels like you're giving up power. But I promise you, <laughs> those folks that you're leading will be drawn to you even more. And you'll connect with them in a deeper way than you've ever connected with them before. So just imagine with me. If we can put these things into practice, if we can recognize our own confirmation bias and be cognizant of that in our conversation with folks and listen more than we talk, if we can actually like, put Christian hospitality into practice where we're, we have the ability to care for each other and, and to bear the burdens of our neighbors and to bear the burdens of our brothers and our sisters. And if, if we can maybe embody vulnerability to a point where we're, we're actually entering into dialogue and conversations that we've never had with people before, maybe, just maybe, we've got a shot at pulling things back to center and not being as polarized as we've ever been before. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our closing hymn is How Great Thou Art. Let's do verses one and four together.